We're going to finish Acts chapter 9 this morning. If you want to turn to Acts 9 verse 32. 43 is where our passage is going to be. I'm excited about this passage. I was telling Bo and Dwayne this week just about um, how when you, you approach a certain scripture and you come to it the first time, sometimes there doesn't seem to be a whole lot that you can take from it. And you read it, you get a few things, you move on. That's how this scripture was at first when I read it. And as I, my habit is I try and read through the passage on Monday and that's it. I don't study it. I just try and read it, get it on my mind and think about it for the day. And uh, so when I did that Monday, as I thought through it, thought through it, thought through it, a beautiful theme started coming out and it dominated the passage for me as I looked at it again and again throughout the week. So I'm excited about this passage. Um, it's a testimony to the Lord's Word how something familiar to you can, uh, can shed new truth nonetheless when you come to it in a certain way. We're going to talk about obedience and providence. So if you ever had a time in your life where your plans, or at least um, what you thought were your plans, didn't go the way you expected. They didn't go the way you wanted. Um, I, love, I love Sally's testimony. I'm going to use your testimony. On her cross-country trip way, when, when did you come here, 80s? 83. She's making her way across the country. They broke down here in Clovis. I'm sure not intending to stay, but here you are, right? <laughs> Maybe not what you planned, but we sure are glad the Lord had a different plan and you've been here. Uh, maybe in a million years you're doing something or, or somewhere that you never thought you'd be. There's a man named Thomas Koch back in the 1700s. He was a very educated, sophisticated man, Oxford trained um, man. He left his ministry at that time in the Anglican church to become John Wesley's chief assistant. John Wesley was going everywhere, preaching everywhere. Uh, the newly formed Methodist denomination was just exploding because of the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley's evangelism. So uh, Thomas Koch quit the Anglican church to help Wesley in the Methodist movement. On September 24, 1785, he and three other men packed their stuff boarded a ship and left England, sailing out of the English Channel. They were headed for Nova Scotia. That was their plan. And they wanted to establish a group of missionaries in Nova Scotia where they could be trained and it could become somewhat of a center to send out more missionaries. But much like Jonah's trip was beleaguered by a devastating storm, their trip was hampered by a similar storm, so much so that the ship's captain actually determined at one point to throw all of them overboard. He didn't, thankfully. He threw much of their stuff, their papers, their books overboard because the captain thought that they were bringing misfortune upon their trip. It, it ended up being a three-month trip when it should have been one month long. And in the end, they didn't land anywhere near Nova Scotia. They landed in the Caribbean. A bummer, right? <laughs> They, specifically the island they went to uh, and landed at was Antigua, if you know that place. And it was Christmas morning. So when they got to the island, Coke knew that there's at least one Methodist missionary there. And uh, his name was John Baxter. So he asked the ship's captain to take he and his three colleagues to shore early Christmas morning. He intended to go find someone who could point him the way to this man, John Baxter. They get to shore, it's early in the morning, it's still somewhat dark, and they see a man just cheerfully walking down the street, swinging a, a lamp. So they, they go up to him and ask him, hey, do you know this man, John Baxter? Do you know where we could find him? And lo and behold, it's John Baxter himself. Baxter, on his end, said he thought they just came out of nowhere. They just appeared all of a sudden. Four Methodist missionaries all of a sudden here, Christmas morning, Baxter had planned some special Christmas services for the island, and so he was ecstatic to see these four men all of a sudden join him and help him. They ended up having three services that day. So much work was, was uh, birthed on that morning 
that Coke and the, the three missionaries with them abandoned any idea of going to Nova Scotia and they planted the missionary team right there instead. And about 20 years later at, at Coke's death, there was over 17,000 believers coming out of those islands around the world. It's a wonderful account of God's providence and how he works in the lives of believers. Before we move on, I thought it would be important to, that we understand what this idea of providence is. It's, a, it's one of those church words we use, we don't define much. And there's a difference between sovereignty and providence. So I'm going to lay this out for you as we move forward. You'll have a working understanding of what we're talking about. Sovereignty, theologically speaking, is God's control over and of all things. He, uh, as creator, he has right over those things he's created. And he can rule over them as he chooses. Now, he doesn't choose, obviously, evil means or ways to rule. He's good. He's righteous. So his sovereignty reflects that. Providence, on the other hand, is the means by which he exercises that control. It's the circumstances that we look at and say, well, that's kind of random, not what I expected. But providentially, God is superseding it and directing this. Charles Hodge, a real famous theologian, scholar, said this, By God's foresight, providence is a careful arrangement prepared beforehand for the accomplishment of his predetermined ends. That's a pretty sophisticated definition. Let me say it another way, quoting another man. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, he was a famous Christian philosopher, existential philosopher. He said this, Life is lived by moving forward, but life is understood by looking backward. As you're moving forward into the future, you don't always understand what's going on. You don't see how these things are coming together until after you've lived it and you look back and then you see clearly. That's what he's saying. It's a good definition of how to understand providence. When we look back on our life, all of a sudden we see, wow, God, I see your plan in that. I see your hand in this. So we're going to consider God's providence this morning in this account. One of the things, one of the reasons I picked the book of Acts to go through as a new church is if we don't understand the moving and leading of the Holy Spirit in the church, providentially, we are going to hamper, hinder, and miss much ministry He has for us. We don't determine the ministry. It's given to us. We are to be led into it obediently. That's what we're going to see with Peter. So, four points we're going to consider. Really five, but... The fifth one setting up next week. First, doing and being what we are supposed to be doing and being. It's the first verse we're going to consider, and in my opinion, it is the key to this whole passage. Then we're going to consider Peter's healing of Aeneas at the town of Lydda. Then he moves from there to Joppa and raises Tabitha. And in verse 43, we're going to begin to see the bigger picture of why he ended up here. Okay, let's read our passage together. First beginning, verse 32. We'll read through verse 35, and then we'll pick it up in a minute. Acts 9, 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas... Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. The first point, which could possibly might be my biggest of this, I want us to see this, is the few short words in verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, What's he talking about? Well, if you remember, last week we, we looked at ending, if you want to turn real quick with me, verse 30, um, 31 of Acts 9. Paul has been saved. He's been converted. He comes to Jerusalem, preaches the gospel there. They try to kill him, and so the disciples say, you need to get out of here, and they send him off to his hometown of Tarsus. But Saul, being the chief persecutor of the church, 
when he came to faith in Christ, a period of peace came upon the church. That's what verse 31 says. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. That's what verse 32 is talking about. How were they being built up? By men like Peter going around here and there, visiting the church throughout all these regions and building them up. Remember, Saul, under his persecution, the church had scattered everywhere. They were a young church. They weren't established in the faith yet. And what was the charge to the apostles? Shepherd my people, right? Go back real quick with me to John chapter 21. We're going to see this very thing. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's meeting with his disciples. If you remember the account, Peter had, had denied the Lord and it devastated him. And so the Lord comes to him and reaffirms his, his call. Peter, I know you denied me, but I'm going to use you nonetheless. Verse 15 of John 21. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. So he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter, being grieved that he said to him the third time, Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. That's the commission. What do we see Peter doing? Obediently going about the region. Now this is big. Remember the animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritans, for instance. John and Peter, when Philip went to Samaria and preached the gospel, they hear the Samaritans are coming to faith, so John and Peter go visit the church there. They are encouraged, right? They see the Lord among them, and on their way back to Jerusalem, they're visiting all the towns. Hey, the Lord is expanding out of Jerusalem. It's growing. And it's the apostles' job to go to those churches and establish them in the faith. This is what Jesus had told Peter to do. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend to them. That's shepherding. This is what Peter, we find in Acts, doing. Taking advantage of this time of peace. Peter's not sitting at home as it would be easy to do. He's getting out and he's interacting with the churches shepherding just like the Lord had told him. A scholar named Ramsey said this, Never was such a big piece of work mentioned in so few words. It's very easy to overlook how important this verse 32 is. The fact that Peter is going here and there among all the churches sets up this whole point. Um, so, the main point before we move on, I want to say this. Peter's obedience at this point is putting him in a place to be immediately available for use. When you don't do the things you know you should be doing, there's a few things that happen. One, you can easily fall into sin, right? But secondly, you can easily miss the opportunities that the Lord has ordained for you. Peter doesn't have a big picture understanding yet of, of what God is, is going to do with him. So what's he doing? He's doing what he knows he should be. I know that the Lord told me to tend, to feed. So I'm going to get out and do that. And it puts Peter in a position where, hey, because you're obediently doing what you know to, however small it might be, you're now in a position of availability for something else. Our leadership group, every week we've been meeting and we're praying for ministry opportunities. And not just mission opportunities, ministry opportunities abroad. If those open up, we'll take them. Specifically, what we're praying for for Waypoint is, Lord, what work do you have for us in Clovis? We want to discover what that is and do it. But if that's where it stopped... If, if all of our desires simply stopped with us praying for that, without ever getting out and doing what we know we should be doing in the meantime, we'll never discover it. 
It's very easy for the church to say, Lord, Lord, I want to know your will. I want to know your will. And not be doing what we know we should be doing now. But when we're obedient to the small things, what the Lord has revealed for us, what happens is that the Lord leads us into those works he's prepared. So if you're not getting yourself out and doing what you should be doing, guess what? You'll never discover what the Lord has for you. He doesn't reveal the big picture so that you can go, there it is, I'm walking it. Oh. It might be, Simon, tend my sheep. Okay. Um, well, I know there's some sheep over in, in uh, Farwell. I'll, I'll go tend them. Start there. Or Grady, hey, Grady needs some help. You know, uh, they're struggling. Let's go up there and help them. Do what you know to do. And in that, the Lord will begin to open up the opportunities. I lay that out now because that's how you're going to see this passage unfold. It's through these small obedient steps, Peter puts himself in a position of availability. And when we get to chapter 10 next week, we're going to see the big picture. And it's so cool. So, Peter's doing. In doing what Peter did know to do, God opened up great opportunities. We're going to look at them. First, he, he goes to Lydda, then in Joppa, then to the Gentile world. I wrote down some points for us to help us, okay? And this, this might be a summary, but when we are trying to discern and discover the will of the Lord, seek the Lord while doing. That's what I was just saying. In being obedient with immediate and known things, the Lord will open up those opportunities. So don't simply pray for the Lord's will do what you know the Lord's will is now. However small that might be, do it. So that in being obedient in those opportunities, God will providentially, through those means, bring you into his greater will. I know I've, I've read many missionary accounts who uh, they themselves talk about they never thought they would be missionaries. They simply had a desire to help at an orphanage or something. They saw a need here or there, and they thought, you know what? I have a desire to help with that. I can do that. And from there, the doors open to this greater purpose, and off they go. Their course of life was changed. Part of what this takes for us, church, is a willingness to let go of our plans. Doesn't it? We all, and this isn't necessarily wrong, we all plan out our course. We all have desires that we'd love to see fulfilled. We'd all love to be a part of certain things. Good or bad? The question is, yeah, even if that's good, is that what the Lord wants from you? This week, um, Paul and Bo and I have been going through uh, some training for the Pregnancy Resource Center to become counselors to the men. And I, we're super excited about it. It's been wonderful training. And... And we're talking about this point. You know what? There's, they, they mentioned a, a, a woman who her approach to things was, you know what? The Lord hasn't convicted me yet that I need to be a part of that. Right? And the wisdom was brought up. There might be a need. Right? She could just go fulfill it. But you might be taking someone else's job and, and, and hindering them from stepping up to the plate. Or that might be something you need to do. Test the waters. Right? Put yourself, in other words, in a position where, Lord, if this is what you want, boom, I'm here. So, availability. I love what we looked at the other day when um, the Lord called Ananias to go to Saul. Remember what Ananias said? This is in chapter 9, verse 10. There's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him, Ananias, he said, Behold, Lord, here I am. We, we trace that statement through all the Old Testament, all the great men of faith. Abraham, Jacob, Isaiah, Moses. All these men of faith have the same response when the Lord said, Hey, you ready? They said, Here I am. They were in a position of availability, and the Lord used them greatly. What about the converse? Let's look at David. I think this is a great example. If you want... Mark, Acts chapter 9, and turn with me to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel. 
What happens when we don't put ourselves as God's workmanship in a position of availability? I made the statement there on your slide. If you're not serving the Lord, you're still serving something, right? Your time, your attention, your focus, your affection is being given to something somewhere. In 2 Samuel, we know the account of David's affair with Bathsheba. And if David had been doing what he should have been doing, this whole thing could have been avoided. And when you do a study of David's life from this point on, compared to that point forward, it's radically different. David's faith was not the same. The Lord's presence was not the same. He had turmoil within his family. Where before, David was a mighty conqueror in the Lord. Walked in faith. Right? He was blessed. But in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But what? David stayed in Jerusalem. As king, where should he have been leading the army? He sends his men and says, now I'll stay back. That was David's downfall right there. You read the rest of the account. He's on his rooftop one, one night. He sees Bathsheba taking a bath. Lust tempts him, he sends for Bathsheba, has an affair, gets her pregnant, and then murders her husband. The response that David should have had, what's interesting, is actually found in Bathsheba's own husband's word, Uriah's words. Look at verse 10 and 11. David calls Uriah back from the battlefield and tries to get Uriah to go in and sleep with his wife to cover his tracks, right? To cover his sin. Uriah understands the implications in verse 10. Well, verse 9, let's read that. But Uriah slept at the door. He wouldn't go into his home to be with his wife. He slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, verse 10, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Now here's the reasoning of Uriah. It should have been the reasoning David should have been on the battlefield. Verse 11, Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Because he wouldn't do it, David had him killed. But if he had only been doing what he should have been doing as king, all this would have stopped. That's why back in Acts, the fact that Peter is out going here and there, being the shepherd God called him to be, it put him in a position of obedience and fruitful work, keeping him from sin. This is so important for us, church. If you're not putting yourself in a position of availability to serve the Lord, you're going to serve something. And most likely it will tend to not be good. That's why verse, nine, or verse uh, 32 in Acts 9 is so important. So let's move forward in our account. We've set up how God is going to use Peter's obedience to providentially lead him into greater work. So Peter goes down in Acts 9.32 to the saints who lived at Lydda. In verse 33, he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. So he immediately rose. So Lydda was about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem and about 10 to 11 miles southeast of Joppa, if you were to see a map. So Jerusalem, go northwest about 20 miles and then another 11 miles you get to Joppa, which was on the coast. It was an important town because it was a route between the Babylonian kingdom and Egypt. And so these caravans would come right through Lydda. That's why on Paul's missionary journeys we're going to see, Paul was very strategic where he went. He would go to Corinth, for instance, Ephesus, 
huge places of commerce. Why? Because when the gospel went there, it would be taken all over the world. So Lydda is an, an important town, a strategic place for the church. We're told there's already saints there at Lydda. So either these saints were some of those Christians who fled Jerusalem and arrived here, or they could be people that Philip, when he was going through the area, after meeting with the Ethiopian eunuch, for instance, that Philip evangelized and they came to faith. I think that's probably likely, likely in, in 840, if you want to reference that. We're not told how they became saints or who they heard from. But let's look at this man, Aeneas. And, and by the way, these miracles are not going to be my focus this morning. Okay? As cool and, and awesome as they are, this is, this is not what I'm focusing on. But Aeneas was in a predicament. He'd been bedridden for eight years. He was paralyzed. He was at the mercy, in other words, of people to care for him. It's not strange, in other words, that we find this man in the company of Christians, right? Christians, when they are walking and living obediently, always have a heart for these kind of people, the needy. I've given the example historically before when Nero set uh, Rome on fire because of the plague. He blamed it on the Christians, but it was actually the Christians running into Rome to save those people. Nero was just going to let them burn and die. But the Christians were running into the fire to save them. That's the attitude here. We see Aeneas in the company of the saints. Whether he was a believer, we're not told. I tend to think he was a believer. Because he didn't. Peter, when he comes to Aeneas, doesn't require faith from him. I think faith was already present with this man as a believer. He simply says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Um, it was a desperate situation. It's very similar to the account. If you go to Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, I'm not going to read it all. But it's the account where, where Jesus is preaching in the synagogue. There's a paralyzed man and his friends couldn't get in because of the crowd, right? So they climb up on the roof, tear the roof open, lower his friend down in front of Jesus. And when you look at some of the, the, the similarities in this account and what was said by Peter versus the account in Mark chapter 2 and what was said by Jesus, it is very, very similar in, in the verbiage that they use. I think Peter, in other words, is recalling the ministry of Christ. But here, Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, simply, rise, take up your bed and go home. He didn't have to say, I heal you, right? Here, Peter is very careful to say, it's Jesus Christ who heals you. He's hiding, in other words, behind the Lord. I have a quote for you from one of my favorite old pastors, Alexander McLaren. He said this, Let us hide ourselves behind our Lord. The prop that holds up some great trophy to the eyes of the world is behind the trophy, and it's hidden by it. The herald is not to blow his own name or praise through his trumpet, but his king's. And he is to be forgotten when the, the royal progress has come. It is Christ himself who heals Aeneas. And Peter makes that clear. But the healing was immediate and it was orderly. Aeneas rises up. He makes his bed, collects his things immediately. True miracles are always immediate, by the way. So the gospel, what's the result of this? Verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now this is important. This is mega. The, Lydda is an actual town. Sharon is an actual area that covers a very broad area. It would incorporate many towns. It was a coastal plain, in other words. It makes me think that, that many people knew who this man Aeneas was. Because it says, when all the residents... I don't know how else to interpret all, but to me, all... All the residents of Lydda and all the residents of Sharon saw Aeneas healed. And what was the result? Salvation. They turned to the Lord. As is very common with the miracles, a true miracle, it's not simply that a miracle was done for these individuals. There's residual blessing that happens. Uh-oh. Power's still good? Okay. You guys are just going to have to sit in the dark, but I'll, I'll try and bring the light to you. <laughs> Be overly spiritual, right? No. So all turn to the Lord. This is an incredible 
incredible statement, verse 35. I don't know how else to interpret, but hey, the whole town and the whole area was converted through this miracle. Pretty incredible. But this opens up to another word. Verse 36, a disciple named Tabitha. Okay? Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Her name literally means gazelle. And it's pointing to the fact that this woman was characterized by a gracefulness about her. A, beauty, a beautiful grace accompanied this woman. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She was a true disciple. As I think about who this woman must be in, in reading this account of, of her death and how it affected the town, I think that Tabitha was a disciple that every father, every mother wishes their daughter would become. She would have been one of those women that if you had a son, you hope her son marries her. Right? She was just graceful and beautiful, full of good works toward everybody, acts of charity, alms, giving. She was a servant. She was unselfish, full of gracefulness. Well, let me go back. Okay. Let's keep reading. Verse 37. So in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid her in an upper room. Now since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men in, to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the wid widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside. And knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. So Tabitha here is probably the first manifestation, the first picture of, of the spiritual gifts of mercy and helps, right? I think it was probably present elsewhere, but this is the first time we actually see it in operation. This woman was a servant. At her death, who's present mourning over her? The widows. All the tunics, all the garments this woman spent with her own hands meeting the needs of these precious saints. It's the first manifestation of those spiritual gifts. And it's interesting that when she died, the disciples in Joppa had already heard that Peter was nearby in Lydda, 11 miles away. So they intercede for this woman and send two men quickly to Peter and say, come here quickly to us. Now this probably was not... Uh, it was probably, as, as far as I can tell, the day that Tabitha died, these two disciples went on their journey. And it was probably the next day by the time Peter got there. Okay? As quickly as they could. It, it could have been later that day. We're not really told, so take it or leave it. But it shows you how much this woman meant to the church. Right? Her loss was a blow to this young body. And they, knowing Peter was close, knowing what Peter was being used to do in Lydda, heal Aeneas, they said, hey, come to us. Come to us. I think this woman was, was one of those kind of women that every pastor wishes they had in their body. It's a pastor's dream, right, to have these wonderful saints, humble, serving women. Fortunately, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have a church full of y'all. I'm going to start calling all of you Tabithas. The Lord's been too good. So verse 38, here's the key. They hear that Peter was there. They send two men urging him, please come to us without delay. What's the point again? The fact that Peter was faithful in Lydda to be doing what he knew to do put him once again in a position of availability to what? Go quickly to Joppa. 
Peter didn't have plans. If he did have plans, they were gone, abandoned. You need me to chop them? Okay, I wouldn't plan on going there. I'm, I'm going now, though. His availability and his obedience at Lydda put him in a position of availability to go quickly with urgency. Why with urgency? Well, it's pretty obvious. If, if she had been washed and placed in the upper room, she would be buried, buried very quickly. Her body would start to decompose. Remember uh, Lazarus, after four days, when Jesus arrived four days after his death and opened the tomb, what would his sister say? Oh, by this time he's going to stink. Don't do that. It's a very short window. With urgency, Peter left. It shows, it's a new point I want to make, this also shows the organic nature of what ministry looks like. Ministry is not always something that's just this structured, planned out kind of thing, Right? In fact, I think that rigidness and, hey, this is how it's got to be. This is the timetable. This is what we're going to do. Da, 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 da. We've got everything planned out to a T. It's going to hinder the work of the Lord. Peter had no idea that Joppa was where he was going to go. But it's where God wanted him to be. If he structured everything, planned out everything, he would have missed it. Ministry is organic in this way. It doesn't mean there's not a plan. But it does mean, hey, plans can change very quickly. And it might mean we don't fully know what's going on. But we're going to be obedient. We're going to do what we know to do now. And if that's as far as I see to know to do, the Lord will open up the next opportunity. Just as he did when they got the knock on the door. Lydda, Peter, come to Joppa. Okay. Reminds me of what Jesus said in John chapter 3. The wind blows where it chooses and no one knows where it goes or why. That's how the Spirit often leads in ministry. Hey, the Spirit's guiding us over here. Okay, let's go. It's easier to go with the wind than against the wind. We understand that in West Texas. <laughs> Don't fight the wind here. You're loose. Go with it. Don't resist it. That's what we see Peter doing. His encounter, again, is very similar to another encounter we're told about in Jesus' ministry when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5. That account's found in 35 to 43. There, Jesus comes into the house. Everyone is upset. They're crying. Jesus puts them all out of the room. And he says to her, it's interesting, in the original language, there's only one letter that's different from what Jesus said to the little girl and what Peter said to Tabitha. Jesus tells the little girl, Talitha Kumai. Peter said, Tabitha Kumai. There is a difference, though, once again, Peter's not putting himself forward as though he has all this great power. First, before he ever says a word, what's the text say he does? He comes next to the body and he prays. Peter understands it's not me. It's not me that does this. Just as he said to Aeneas, it's Jesus Christ who does this for you, man. Get up. He walks in the room. First thing he does, Lord, if this is your work, you have the power to raise her. Tabitha, Kumai. It's a beautiful account. What else is interesting to me is this. The miracle at Lydda profited mainly the man Aeneas. There is residual effect in the salvation of those who saw him. This miracle, however, didn't really profit Tabitha. If I believe what the rest of the scripture says, Paul said, hey, to depart and be with the Lord is far better. She was with the Lord and came back. This miracle to me is a mercy to the church. The young church. I think that's what this is about. It's a statement of God saying to his church, I love you. I will equip you. I have power over life and death. Here's this precious gift back to you. It didn't profit her. her. I mean, she's going to die again and she'll go be with the Lord, no doubt. It did lead to more fruitful work on her part, I'm sure. Her reward in heaven will be that much greater. But this immediately was for the church. It's a beautiful account. So once again, Peter's obedience, his availability, doing what he knows to do, put him in a position to raise this woman. The church is blessed, but what else happens? Verse uh, 42, it became known throughout all of Joppa. And once again, salvation is the result. Many believed in the Lord. 
This wasn't planned by Peter. He goes to Lydda to edify the saints. He finds a man, Aeneas, there, heals him. What happens? People are saved. He's in Lydda for some time, I think, because all Sharon, that's a huge area. All Sharon had time to see this man, hear what happened. Joppa got word of what happened at Lydda. That takes time for news to travel and people to come. I think he had been at the town for some time. He goes to Joppa, same thing. Hey, I wasn't planning this. There was a need. I went. Look what happened. I was simply available. I was obedient to go. The Lord used me. Verse 43. So after all this, it says Peter stayed in Joppa for many days. We're not told how many. But he, we are told where he stayed. Stayed with a man named Simon, whose occupation was a tanner. Seems insignificant, kind of like verse 32. Quick little statement. I think verse 32 is the key to this passage. As I think verse 43 is the key to understanding chapter 10, which we're going to get into. Why is this important? Well, he didn't know Simon. Simon's hospitality had opened up his home and host Peter speaks of the fruitfulness going on in the church. But his profession, a tanner. The fact that Peter touched the dead body and the fact that he's staying with the tanner, according to the law in Leviticus, both those things would have defiled Peter as a Jew. He was not permitted to do it. As a tanner, if he was a tanner, he'd be defiled all day until evening and he'd wash. And the next day, if he went back to tanning skins, handling dead animals, he'd be defiled again all day. All the utensils in the house of a tanner were defiled and had to be washed according to Jewish custom. What are we seeing here? The third work that's going on. And this is not explicit, but implicit at this point. It will be explicit in the next chapter. What's the third work? The first one was healing Aeneas. The second one was raising Tabitha. These are precursors to a work that God is doing in Peter himself. What I believe is going on is Peter, the fact that he handled Tabitha's body, that he's staying with the Tanner, Tanner shows he's breaking away from that legalistic Jewish custom and coming into a fuller understanding and sense of the freedom of the grace of God, just like Bo read. When we get to chapter 10 next week, that's exactly what's going to happen to Peter in his vision, right? Peter, rise, kill, and eat. By no means, Lord. I can't defile myself with that. I just touch the dead body. You're staying with the tanner. God's beginning to do something in Peter, bring him into a fuller understanding of what his grace frees us from. And it really is the capstone. This is the major point that I've been making. Of all the places that Peter ended up staying, it was with a tanner. God has providentially led Peter from going here and there to Lydda, to Joppa, to a tanner's house. We're going to pick up the account next week. If you look at verse 9, or actually, um, not verse 9, verse 10, when Peter is on the housetop of the tanner, he goes up to the top to pray. He becomes hungry and wants something to eat. He falls into a trance. He sees the heavens open, something like a great sheet descending. And this whole time, chapter 10 is going to be a big chapter, so I'm doing a little pre-work here. This whole time, we're, we're going to have this picture. God is in Caesarea working in the centurion. He's in Joppa working in Peter. He's going to bring the two worlds to inter interact here. He's going to bring Peter back up to Caesarea. This is providence. God has providentially led Peter to this tanner's house because that's the vision that the centurion had. You need to go to a certain house in Joppa to a certain man who's a tanner. Okay, we'll go find Peter at this place. They find Peter there right after he has this vision. That vision of Peter and what, what's going on here of, of this fuller work of grace is going to be dominant in chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 15 of the book of Acts. What if Peter, going back to verse 32, had not been obedient to what he knew to be obedient to as a shepherd? What if he'd been sitting in Jerusalem, 
and not been getting out tending and feeding the sheep. This is huge. You see how God has providentially opened up, hey, you've got this work, this work, this work, but guess what? All those little things are opening up into this work. The will of God made manifest. It's awesome. We get a picture of the visible church. What's it look like? Well, from Peter, here's some action words I wrote down that we saw. Peter was going. He was serving. He was healing. He was preaching, evangelizing. He was raising the dead. He was praying. He was shepherding. These are all visible things that we see the church being about. On the other hand, the disciples. They were interceding. They were ministering. They were serving one another. They were mourning. They were being hospitable. They were sending. They were pleading. These are all things that we can summarize the visible church was doing in this account. They're busy. There's so many interactions going on, right? That's the nature of ministry. Everybody's doing something. They're like a bunch of ants. All busy. All doing something. But we also get a picture of the invisible Christ in it all. Christ is in Peter to heal. He's in Peter to raise the dead. He's leading Peter to Lydda. He's leading Peter to Joppa. He's leading Peter to Simon the Tanner. In the disciples, Christ is serving through them. He's interceding, right? They had a hope. Hey, go send for Peter. The Lord is using him there. He's filling their hearts with the same hope that he can do it with Tabitha. And he's also in the harvest of those who came to faith. You see the visible church being and doing what they should be, and in it all, the invisible Christ empowering and leading. W.H. Griffith Thomas said this, It is only possible to have reality in the church when Christ is realized in the Christian. I.e., I'll summarize that for you. Being who you are to be and doing what you should be doing is a way of realizing the presence and power of Christ today. Being obedient to what you know to be obedient to, even in the small things, is how you will realize the power and presence of Christ in your life now. If you're not going to take and be obedient in the small things and make yourself available to Him, you won't ever experience the power and presence of Christ. You'll never discover what He's got planned for you. Because you won't make yourself available now. He's not going to show you the big vision and say, go do it. No, He's going to say, be obedient, and you'll walk into my will. Just like Peter did. I've got some quotes on providence I thought were all really good. I don't know who this man was. Frank Gonzalez said this, Statesmanship is the art of finding out in what direction the Almighty God is going and in getting things out of His way. <laughs> Letting Him be God. Get out of His way. This is an anonymous quote. The more we trust the providence of heaven, the less we fear the calamities on earth. Do you really believe the circumstances you're in, that God is in those circumstances? I mean, really believe that. Now, I'm not talking about sinful choices like, oh, God wanted me to be in this consequence of my sinful choice. He didn't want you to sin, but providentially, He's allowing you to experience the consequences of it, perhaps. But what kind of consequences are we dealing with. There's, there's many. I mean, we have a group here that can be dealing with a, a, a manifold amount of consequences or, or issues in your life. The more we trust that God is in these circumstances, providentially teaching us, moving us, leading us, the more we're going to walk in peace and not fear. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. We believe in the providence of God, but we do not believe half enough in it. We'll give lip service, in other words, oftentimes, but not truly trust. Vance Havner said this, I thank God for the unseen hand, sometimes urging me onward and sometimes holding me back, sometimes with a caress of approval and sometimes with a stroke of reproof, sometimes correcting and sometimes comforting. My times are in His hands. When we learn to see God's hand in the things we're facing and where we're at, our faith will be transformed. It'll be transformed. And maybe best and last of all, Paul the Apostle said, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. My sister corrected me on this verse one time. I was glad she did. I was at the time going through something difficult and she asked me, Seth, do you believe that God will work this for your good? And my response was, I believe that he can work it for good. She said, can? The scripture says, he will. That's all she needed to say. I wasn't trusting in the Lord. Yeah, Lord, I believe you can do this. Do you believe I will do this? The passage says, we know that God does work together. All things. What are you facing in your life? Do you truly believe that it is for your good? Or are you going to kick against it? Are you going to resist it? See, the Christian has an advantage over the world. We can face calamity with purpose. We can look at it and say, you know what? God is all-powerful. He's over-sovereignly these circumstances. And by His power, He will use this for my good. Look at We're going to get to, later on in the book of Acts, Paul. He's on his way to Rome. He has a shipwreck. All of them have to abandon ship. They float ashore to the island of Miletus. Seems pretty desperate, right? He makes a fire, gets bitten by a snake, shakes it off. <laughs> the island comes to fate. <laughs> it's providence. He's not worried. I mean, it's such a cool, calm, collected picture. God told me this would happen. Come here, guys. Let's make a fire. The more we learn to trust his hand in all things, the more at peace, the more purpose, and the change in outlook that we'll have in our life as we go from place to place and face circumstance after circumstance. Okay, God, I don't know how I ended up here, but here I am. What do you got? That's the outlook of faith. I love this passage for that. I never saw it before. As I said, I was focusing on the miracles. I think the miracles were the means to this greater picture. And we're going to see it in chapter 10. With that, let's pray. I'll invite the worship team back up.